Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The 12th chapter of Acts is an interesting chapter for multiple reasons, but particularly the chapter is full of some delicious irony. And I'm, I'm going to just include those ironic points as I go through my other outline. And I am anticipating that they will dovetail together as we get through this. But I'm going to start with one of the ironic moments. I don't want to have to read the entire chapter. What we're talking about is it's, it starts off with Herod-inspired to oppose the development of the church, the spread of Christianity, and he moves his hand to start uh, persecuting some of the key leaders in Christianity, beheading James and going after Peter. When he saw that it was very popular among the Jews for him to go after James, then he said, well, I'll go after Peter as well. As the story develops in the, the chapter, Peter is miraculously rescued from prison, having been put in prison by Herod as a part of his plot to obviously get, get the, the key leaders. And people are praying, and Peter miraculously is escorted out of prison and shows up at the prayer meeting. And we're just going to kind of go through all of these elements of this story and see what kind of lessons that we can draw out of this. And I, I think there's some very interesting points that can be made. First of all, Herod is depicted as this egotistical king that finds bringing persecution against the church makes him very popular. It feeds his ego. He wants to be popular. So, beheading James and pursuing Peter is all a part of Herod saying this is really a way for me to get some political advantage. It just so happened that Peter, after James was beheaded, Peter was thrown in prison during the feast of Passover. Just brushing up a little bit on our, our Bible knowledge, our Sunday school, we know that the Jewish Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of Passover, was a celebration of Israel coming out of bondage. And Peter was put in bondage in the Jewish season of celebrating coming out of bondage. That's the first irony we have here. He preaches and promotes liberty and freedom to the Jews, liberation through Jesus Christ, who in turn <clears throat> treat him with a dose of captivity and bondage. It just kind of makes you marvel at how these 
contrasts exist in this story. Now we get an early glimpse into, we get a, a glimpse into an early church prayer meeting in this chapter. And in this prayer meeting as well, we also find a, a couple of uh, ironic points. The scripture says, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And to flesh out this particular passage, it notes that while Peter was in prison, he was sleeping between two guards. I find it somewhat interesting, ironic, Peter was sleeping and the church was not sleeping. Peter was not praying, but the church was praying. They were engaged in what we would call an all-night prayer meeting. Does, does that make you question what's wrong with you, Peter? You're the one in bondage. We're the ones staying up all night praying for you. You're in prison sleeping. And so we have to work out in our mind, why is this so and is this okay? Does it make any difference that Peter would leave the praying to somebody else? Now we can only speculate, but I pondered on this for a while. And I came to a pleasing conclusion as far as I'm concerned. I can't prove it scripturally. But I think it's possible that Peter was at peace being in prison because he didn't feel it was necessary to pray his way out of this mess. You know, when you don't know what God wants to do with you and he hasn't told you any specific plans, when you are happy to be in his will, you don't have to pray yourself out of every predicament you're in. Sometimes the predicaments you're in are things that God places you purposely in order to develop something in you. So rather than Peter being panicked and being in prison and making the case, I don't belong here. I should be out there. I should be doing something. The fact that he sleeps between the guards tells us he was at peace with his situation. Being in prison to him was not necessarily the end of the world. The man he followed was crucified. Maybe this was the time for him to come to a point of death. Maybe more things come out of his death than come out of his life. There's a lot of possibilities. But he was at peace. It was the church that wanted Peter to live. Peter was whatever. <laughs> if I live, fine. If I don't fight, it doesn't make a difference. I'm obedient. I'm doing what God wants me to do. But the next thing is that the people who wanted Peter, obviously for personal reasons, the people who wanted to pray him out of prison, it appears as though God heard and answered their prayers. Because as the story goes on, we know that God sent an angel that personally escorted Peter out of prison. And Peter arriving at the house of the prayer meeting where it was being held, knocked on the door, 
but not, was not immediately granted immediate entrance. Irony number two. Peter is in prison between two guards and a prohibitive gate. And he had no problem walking out of that. He can't get into a prayer meeting. <laughs> the prison gate can't hold him, but the front door excludes him. So there's something wrong with this picture. His enemies can't hold him. His friends lock him out. It's easier to break into out from the enemy than it sometimes is to break in to your own friends. Special little group. Anyway, we've got a little ironic thing going on here that if you understand the irony, it makes the, the whole story a whole lot richer. And we look at this, this, this prayer meeting that people undoubtedly uh, moving the hand of God, or at least agreeing with the will of God, one of the two we can, we can safely say, is... Uh, How much does faith really play into answered prayer? I know it's an odd question for your pastor to be asking, but we probably need to ask that question. How much does faith really play into answered prayer? And the reason this is an important question is because if we are of the school believing that faith is the activator, faith is that ingredient in prayer that makes things happen, then the, the fault that develops from that mentality is that we can make anything happen if we have enough faith. And if that's what we believe, then we're not really conceding to the will of God. We're just saying it just takes more faith. All you got to do is have more faith. If you don't have it, believe harder. And see, there, there, is a, there is a problem that develops if it's all about faith. But it's about faith, but it's also about the will of God. So where do these two meet? At what point does it require more faith of you? And at what point does it require you to yield to the will of God? How many of you have ever have been in that difficult situation of wondering if you're just falling short in faith or if you have to yield to the will of God? I, I have... I have struggled with that many times. And I would suppose many of you, if you haven't, you're going to at some time in your life. It's an honest, sincere question that we ask ourselves. This is evidence that the people may have believed what God could do. But whenever Peter showed up at the door and they, they hear that Peter is here. They don't believe it. So my question then is, did they really have faith? They were praying, but they didn't believe the answer. There's a disconnect here. Something is going on. If you think they were praying in faith believing, then they should have, been, have enough faith to say, we not only believe God can, but we believe he did. 
So something happened in this prayer meeting where they say, God, we believe you can, but we don't believe you did. Faith broke down at some point. Peter's at the door, and they said, he can't be. Why can't he be? We don't understand why they struggled with this. You were praying about that, weren't you? He's at the door. Can't be. It doesn't work that way. Well, doesn't sound to me like they had unwavering faith. But it does, does sound to me like whether you have unwavering faith or don't have unwavering faith, the good news is that God often meets you where you are. And not trying to put the guilt trip on you by saying the only reason you don't have what you're asking for is because you're not praying hard enough. I see evidence in Scripture where sometimes it looked as though faith was the activator and sometimes it looked as though, Lord, help, help me believe. Help my unbelief. I know you can't, but help my unbelief. And he, and he bridged the gap. He met them where they were. So sometimes little faith does it. Sometimes a lot of faith does it. Sometimes no faith. We're surprised by it. I, I don't know how many people uh, were healed in Scripture. I know there are cases of people healed in Scripture where healing was brought to them. They were not seeking healing in faith. They were surprised by the healing that was given to them. What about the beggar at the gate called Beautiful? Uh, 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 there's nothing in that, in that story that I think demonstrates the faith of this man who laid there at the gate. This was something that Peter brought to him. Such as I have, have give I unto thee. Or the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he did. And some may argue, well, that was the point of faith. I, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just trying to say we see different measures of faith. Some great faith in them, some not so great faith. But God supersedes all of that and so I'm trying to lift any guilt trip from you thinking well the only thing reason things don't happen in my life is because I just don't have enough faith to believe it God's bigger than that God understands how we struggle and he's not some despot that's up there saying until your faith meter rises to here I'm not doing anything for you God's a good God and he meets us where we fall short it's possible. Scripturally, I think, it's possible to persuade God through prayer. I, I mean, I look at examples like Moses, where he prayed in behalf of Israel. And the Bible says that God's attitude was like, he, he relented and he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened to do. It appears as though Moses negotiated with God and caused God to reconsider, to change his mind. So, prayer can move God. And sometimes, all the prayer in the world doesn't change God. Because at that point, we have to become submissive to his will. Which is really dovetailing into my next point, and that is prayer must always regardless be subordinate to the sovereign will of God here's the irony the people prayed Peter was delivered James was beheaded what gives why is 
is it? If God can be moved with prayer, if God is all-powerful, if God can deliver, why is it he delivers some and doesn't deliver others? Why is it when, uh, let's just take a, a hypothetical example. A, a horrible storm moves through the area. Our area, we can relate to tornadoes. Other areas of the country, it might be an earthquake or something. Let's just say, for our sake, we can relate to it. A horrible tornado moves through the area. And it wipes out a row of houses or it wipes out half a town. And there's a house left standing. And the occupants stand up and say, I thank God he spared me. And the critics say, well, why didn't God spare any of these other people that got wiped out? And it's fodder for the critics who want to criticize our faith and then want to criticize God. And, and we say, thank you, God, for giving me good health today. Well, what about the other Christians that don't have good health? And so we read things like this in Scripture where Peter is delivered from prison, James didn't get that kind of deliverance. He died. He was executed. And we struggle. Why is it God is selective? Why is it sometimes you pray for healing for your loved ones and they're healed, and sometimes you pray for healing for your loved ones and they don't make it? Why is this? And do you go away saying, so why even pray? It just looks like everything's hardwired from heaven, so why do we do this? Well, we pray not only, not always do we pray because we're trying to custom design the results. We pray because, not because prayer changes things, and that's a, that's a, that's a popular motive. Prayer changes things. But listen, there's another, mo there's another motto, prayer changes people. And I don't always pray because I can change God or I can change the direction. I pray because I know God can change me. I know he can bring me into conformity with his will. And prayer changing people is a whole lot more important than prayer changing things. Because we have to come in to agreement and conformity with his will regardless. Prayer is not a formula. There is nothing in Scripture that guarantees us if we do A, B, C, God will do D. That's too formulized. We pray not just to make God jump through hoops, but to put us in a better position to trust God that whatever he does sovereignly, that he will do it in the best interest, that he will do the right thing. And that's what prayer does in fashioning us. So we read this chapter about Peter in prison, the all-night prayer meeting. And most sermons coming to this point want to make a lesson about prayer out of this, like I have talked to you about prayer so far. But there's a better lesson than prayer in this story. This is not primarily as far as I'm concerned, about what prayer can do because we obviously see evidences of what prayer doesn't do. So how can this really be a biblical lesson about what prayer can do? I think the lesson that really comes out of this that is more important is a lesson of obedience regardless of the outcome. With Peter being delivered, James being beheaded, both 
remained faithful and obedient to God to the very end. Our fate is out of our control. We don't know if we will be among the favored or the victims in this world. We don't know if that storm will take house, take our house or our neighbor's house. It will spare us or take us. We don't know which of the Christians who are praying are going to be delivered and which ones are not going to be delivered. But what we do know is regardless of which way it turns out, the important thing is you have to remain obedient and faithful to God. That is the biggest and most important lesson from this rather than trying to formulize prayer and figure out how to custom make life to our advantage. And that is don't give up on God no matter what happens in your life. Irony number five, we move to the next little narrative in this chapter. As I mentioned, Herod found that he curried the favor of the Jews when he beheaded James. He became very popular. He goes after Peter. If this is what makes the people happy, he's glad to do it. He was feeding his ego by persecuting Peter. It, it, it was not as much about stopping the church as it was about him. This makes me popular. And he was a ruthless man to think like this. And the irony is that even though James, the beheading of James made Herod popular, the imprisoning of Peter humiliated him. He had to live with the embarrassment that he thought he was on a roll, and he took James and he successfully beheaded him, removed him from this world, and he took Peter, and Peter was able to escape maximum security. And word got back to Herod and he was livid for being humiliated and decided heads have got to roll. If Peter escaped and nobody has any explanation for how this happened, just kill the guards. His ego was terribly wounded and he had to do something to save face. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. So we've mentioned the massive ego of Herod, which inspired him to go after the key figures of Christianity. It, it made him popular. But the story really zooms in on the magnitude of his self-centered problem here. He loved the approval and the praise of men. And after Peter had made a fool out of him, and went, Peter evidently went underground. I mean, he didn't show his face to the authorities right away. Peter's escaped, but he's, he's not. He's lying low. So he's gone. Herod doesn't know where he is. He can't at this point recapture him. He's humiliated. He's embarrassed. There is no explanation for this failure. But Herod makes a speech. And this is another ego-stroking act. 
the crowning moment for Herod came that day when he prepares a speech for the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the background of this is, this is a people who were at odds with Herod. They were not happy with the way he was handling matters. They relied on him and his permission and his authority for them to be able to get the food that they needed for their sustenance. And they weren't getting along well, so the people pleaded with Herod, can't we just have some peace here so we can survive as a people? And so he makes a speech to them. And when he gets done, these people say, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, it, it, there's no indication that Herod was a great orator. What there is indication is that the people of Tyre and Sidon decided this man is really easy manipulated by flattery. So let's just play along with this for a minute, will you? Herod, this wretch, this despicable man who has been at odds with Tyre and Sidon, they're not happy with this man. He gets played by the people of Tyre and Sidon. He gets done with this horrendous, boring, self-inflating speech. And when he gets done, they say, this is the voice of a God. And he bought it, hook, line, and sinker. What they wanted was food. And they knew that they could manipulate him through flattery. And it worked for them. So whenever Herod gets done with this lackluster speech and they call him a god, they lead him to believe that they believe he's more than a king. And he wanted to be thought of as a god. That he had now finally risen to the pinnacle of his own wildest dreams. God interferes. And he said, that's about as far as you're going to go. When you begin to view yourself as God, when you begin to rob God of his honor, his majesty, his rightful place, historically, biblically, we look at that, that does not set well with God. God puts up with a lot of things from us. You just think back on your life. And you admit this morning, God puts, how many are going to say, God puts up with a lot of stuff? I know. Don't infringe on God's deity. He has put a lot, a lot of junk from us, but don't go around thinking you're God. That's where he gets real attentive. And he says, okay, that, that, that's gone far enough. I've put up... Herod is a mess. He's, he's executed James. He's gone after Peter. God is long-suffering. But at the point where they begin to call him a god, and Herod says, you know, I kind of do feel like a god. I, I deserve this. And he accepted the praise of the people. And the Bible says that he was stricken with worms. Let's not think in terms that it happened as quickly as it was described. It's not as though when he gave the speech that suddenly a stomach full of worms, intestines full of worms, just poof, developed and he, and he, and he collapsed. As a matter of fact, the uh, Jewish historian Jerome adds a little commentary to this. He says he, he became sick. 
he quickly died. It may have taken a day or two or three days or whatever, but he, he quickly became quick enough that people knew that this was a judgment from God. Uh, not so slow as to confuse that, but not necessarily right on the spot. And so here he gets done to the speech. He accepts the praise of the people. And then before the day's over, he said, man, I'm not feeling good. And it went from bad to worse. And then he was bedridden. And, and eventually, within probably hours, a couple of days or whatever, the man is dead, having robbed the glory from God. I worry about people who take the limelight from God. I worry about people who, in the ministry, promote them more than they promote God. Have their own name plastered all over their ministry. Have their name all over the corporation. Have their name all over their bus and their jets. And their, you know, God is a jealous God. And he's not going to let anybody stand up and pretend that they have God-like powers and get away with it. Whether God deals with that in this life like he did with Herod or whether he deals with it when we stand before him, it will be dealt with. I see evidences of that from time to time. I have in my lifetime. There was a preacher down in... Louisiana, who about the time that, that uh, your former pastor here was starting a, a pastor school in his, in his new church, this, this pastor had already been conducting a pastor's school down in Louisiana. It was wildly popular. And <clears throat> I knew of pastors who went to this, this school of ministry, which was only a few days long. It wasn't like a, a, a year long, or month long. You just took a few days off, you went to, and it was his, his name, the pastor so-and-so school of ministry, pastoral ministry. You'd take a week off and go down, and he would tell you how to be a successful pastor like him. I had one of my pastor friends come back, and he was just in awe. He said, man, he said, we learned some great stuff. He said, do you know how this pastor has trained the people to wait on him? And, of course, my radar goes up. He said, when, when he pulls up, somebody is waiting to park his car for him. When he enters the church, somebody is waiting to take his coat off of him. Somebody's waiting to escort him. And this was a part of his pastoral school, how you can make people wait on you as a pastor, honor you as a pastor. I didn't like it when I first heard it. I hate it even more than I'm retelling it. Not a one of you has come park my car for me since I've been. <laughs> and I don't expect you to. And any of you funny people around here to get any ideas next Sunday, I'm, I'm going to lock my doors till you go away. 
This congregation has a way of making my sermons live on. <laughs> what an attitude to think that this is all about being a successful pastor, being all about being a rock star. I don't get that. I don't get it at all. I don't think God takes that lightly. Don't rob the glory from Him. All the glory goes to God, not to men. I get down to my final point, and that is the success of the church. And by the way, I go back to the title of my sermon today, the church militant and the church triumphant. These are two terms that I don't know how many of you are acquainted with that. Uh, how many of you know what it means when we say the, the church militant and the church triumphant? Anybody know what it means? That's okay, I didn't expect you to. But it is, it, those are two terms that are used throughout church history. And the church militant refers to the church here on earth. I know the terms don't, don't seem to matter. The church triumphant means when you have graduated from earth to join that, that band of saints who have already uh, passed on, you become a part of the church triumphant. Now when you read that, you understand the difference between the earthly church and the heavenly. Not that the earthly church is bad, but there's a, there's a lot more, it's subject to a lot more control and impact down here than the church triumphant. When you reach it there, they can't touch you. So that, that is the title of my sermon. Because coming to this third point, it's, under, it's, it's important to understand what I see in this chapter as it applies to the success of the church. Irony number six. King Herod's efforts to stop the church. What do you think it did? It just made it all the more successful. It strengthened the church. Herod failed. The church flourished. And the one prominent theme of this chapter is unmistakably that of harsh persecution arising against the church, giving this passage a very dark feel as we read it. And thus far, we have many successful, uh, successful uh, episodes of the young church, of being one of miraculous growth just dotted with a few periods of resistance. But this chapter brings a much more serious and darker mood to this whole development of the church and the story of the church. The Jewish king, the most powerful man yet, to set his hand against the development of the church, now arises in the 12th chapter. He's developed a taste for Christian blood, and it appears if he's not stopped... He's going to do considerable damage to the church by seeking out and executing the kingpins of the movement, which is another reason why Herod died. is not just because he was lifted up with pride, but because he was getting in the way of God's plan. You can't get in the way of God's plan. God will knock you out of the way. You can't, you can't resist the movement of God. Not kings, not presidents, not dictators, no potentate on the face of the earth can stop the move of God. He sets kings up. He removes kings. He gets his job done. Nobody stands in his way. And Luke writes at the end of this narrative, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Regardless of what Herod did, regardless of the attack against the church, this is an important note, but it didn't stop the church. It continued to spread and flourish. Now we've got to distinguish between the church 
and the church. We've got to distinguish between the church as a whole and Westside as a local body of believers. I believe with all my heart that no, no power of hell, no legion of demons, no force can stop the church that Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against. Nothing will stop the church. But don't make the mistake of thinking that the local church is the church. Local churches have gone out of business. The church as a whole will never be stopped. And don't think that there aren't forces in this world that want to stop the church. Not only do we have in the United States unprecedented amount of people who could care less about the church, but it's a growing number of people who hate Christianity. And coming out of the second largest religion in the entire world, Islam. There is the, the, the cannons, the weaponry of Islam are aimed directly at the church and they have the goal of world domination and the elimination of Christianity. How many of you think that's ever going to happen? <laughs> Ain't going to happen, people. Ain't going to happen. Our founder said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, what about, what about the local congregations? Unfortunately, one of the problems is sometimes we have thought the local congregation, because we are church, or part of the church, that somehow we're bulletproof, and we're not. The fact is, if you want to look at the churches that Paul pioneered, dotted along the Mediterranean, struggling little congregations that were bickering and fighting and fussing all the time and hard to get the, the, the roots down. Uh, those little churches, even uh, the church at Ephesus, as he writes the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians is one of the few epistles that Paul ever wrote that he didn't address the problems they had. Ephesians is a good, strong church. Read the epistle in that light commends them. They're doing great. You go over to the book of Revelation and it's the Ephesian church that suddenly has a lot of problems that's developed. And it wasn't long after that that those churches, many of those churches that Paul had established were taken over by the encroachment of Islam. And those churches, those local, local congregations, failed. But did the worldwide church fail? No, it never did. You might have areas where darkness overcomes the local lamp, the local light. But the church at large never fails. No single congregation, this is a wake-up call for Westside, no single congregation is immune to the attacks of the enemy just because we're a part of the church. Doesn't mean that hell can effectively stop the universal church. But don't make the deadly mistake of believing because we're a part of that universal church that we are immune to the attacks of hell, that we can never fail. That the, the, see, the success of the local congregation relies on many factors.
factors that are within the church. Are we a compassionate church? Are we a multicultural church? Are we a biblically, doctrinally sound church? Do we have a passion for evangelism? Are we chasing after God's holiness? Are we accommodating, uh, uh, compromising uh, to accommodate changing culture? Are we taking care of business and dealing with the internal corruption? Or are we covering up sin? All of these questions play into how are we going to fare? Are we going to fail? Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, we can't. The church never fails. I'll tell you what, you can dry up just like the churches there along the Mediterranean dried up if you don't stay close to doing God's business and on the right path. Those churches had great beginnings and they developed serious problems. Look at the churches in the book of Revelation. Only, uh, only a couple of churches out of these seven that are listed uh, are more commendations than criticisms. Ephesus lost its first love. Pergamos adopted false doctrine. The church in Thyatira refused to deal with Jezebel in their congregation. The church at Laodicea was a conceited, self-deluded wreck, thinking themselves to be successful and prosperous and in need of nothing. Christ told them they were lukewarm, wretched, blind, and naked. They had a great beginning, but they strayed. And I think every one of us as members of this church, if you're interested, if you care about your church, shouldn't you be questioning every day, every week? God, are we doing what you want us to do? We don't want to just fall into a, a, a oblivion and irrelevance just because we got a place to open up the doors and turn on the lights and come and worship. We don't want to fail. And we need to do some self-assessment. And regardless of the failure of any individual church, the universal church keeps going. And that, that's significant considering the fact that there's never been a single day, not an hour of a single day, not a minute of any hour where there has ever been no war with hell. It's been constant. We don't have any time since Jesus established the church where hell took the weekend off. Hell has never called a ceasefire against the church. There's never been a truce. It has been relentless from day one. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day, hell has fought the church. And it has continued to grow. And perhaps the biggest irony of all as we talk about the irony of this chapter, is that while hell recruits people into wickedness, it's wicked people that gives the church a job. Hell is just creating work for us, and that's what we do. Hell makes people wicked, and the blood of Jesus Christ makes them righteous. The harvest is great. The harvest is ripe. The church is unstoppable. 
And Jesus promised he would build his church, and he's been doing that successfully generation after generation and century after century with the greatest success any earthly person has ever witnessed in any organization. This is the church militant, and it never loses. And those who are slain in battle in the process of fighting this war become a part of the company of the redeemed, the church triumphant, who have passed from earth to heaven.